You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. What's the latest with the COVID-19 vaccines that are in development? Find out next on this edition of Locked On Pharmacy. You are listening to the Locked On Pharmacy podcast, the insider's view into the world of pharmacy. Hello, this is Frank Fortin from the American Pharmacists Association. The race to develop vaccines for the coronavirus is continuing, with the initial authorizations possibly just weeks away. Who's leading the pack and what are they developing? This week in APHA's weekly webinar on COVID-19 news, APHA President Michael Hogue spoke with John Gravenstein, one of pharmacy's most distinguished authorities on vaccines. He's the editor of the Immunization Action Coalition, president of Vaccine Dynamics, and the 2020 recipient of the Remington Medal, the highest honor in pharmacy. What you're going to hear now is the full discussion between Drs. Hogue and Gravenstein. The slides that Dr. Gravenstein refers to can be downloaded from the Pharmacy Podcast Network webpage for this episode. So without further introduction, here's the discussion. John, it's great to have you with us. Welcome. Michael, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the chance to talk to everybody. Well, we, um, we've got a lot to cover in today's program. Everyone's curious about what's going on with COVID-19 vaccines. I guess to kind of tee things up, would you just at least start out with uh, a little bit about where we are with COVID? We're, we're hearing a lot that the, that the pandemic is getting worse, not better. Maybe you could share with us just a little bit of information about where we are right now with the pandemic as a good lead in. Great, uh, thanks. Brian, can you go to the next slide? I think I'd like to show this graphically. Um, I've got the earth and the total uh, US counts of cases. Uh, lab, which is basically lab confirmed cases usually, and then the death toll. And as scientists, anybody, if any of you heard, uh, oh, the, oh, the pandemic will go away after election day, that's certainly not true. And you knew that long ago. Uh, you can see three, uh, they've been called waves. I'd, I'd rather call them surges because of the, 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 that middle hump was more of a Midwest thing than an Eastern US thing that the first hump was. But you can see the third one rising now. I saw statistics. The case count, I guess, yesterday was over 100,000 new cases uh, lab confirmed. And so in music, I think this is a crescendo. You know, we are it's 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 worse than it's ever been. And that curve is going up. Yeah, well, there's no question that we're seeing uh, increased case rates across many states. And uh, uh, John, what is what do you recommend for pharmacists as the best source to be able to get information that that, that they that they can rely on is uh, accurate and uh, reliable? Uh, uh, CDC in in one uh, um, in one thing, uh, it, you know, your and in, in, in your health departments are. Uh, of course, going to be important sources of local information. Uh, so uh, th those are those should be uh, quite helpful to you. So so let's dive into the COVID vaccines now. Um, I think on our next slide here, we've got uh, a little bit of a graphic that you've created for us about um, uh, the different COVID vaccines. Uh, pharmacists have been 
uh, immunizing for about 25 years now. It's hard to believe, uh, but that's uh, that's where we are. What what's similar? What's different about the uh, COVID-19 vaccine campaign? So so uh, the first those first two rows, the light attenuated vaccines and the inactivated vaccines, are what pharmacists deal with most often day to day. Subunit vaccines are uh, not unusual either. Um, what's what's relatively new are nucleic acid vaccines, especially mRNA vaccines, messenger RNA vaccines, and then viral vector vaccines. There's a, an example or two, but they're not very common. We're, uh, uh, we've got in the backup slides detail about that viral vector row uh, that uh, I'm not going to go through now, but it'll be available to everybody uh, to have as a reference if they go to the pharmacist.com website. But I thought we, in the next few slides, we'd spend more deep, more time on the messenger RNA vaccines because they are the ones that are gonna come through the pipeline first and uh, for a variety of reasons. And uh, so we thought we'd dive deep there. You'll notice that in Blueprint, there's a reference to one of the 15 on COVID-19 sessions that uh, Dan Zlot ran about mRNA vaccines that'll go into a little more technical detail than I'm gonna go into. These are, as Dan points out in that, in that uh, talk, uh, mRNA vaccine candidates or mRNA products have been around for clinical trials for quite a number of years, but this would be their first big, uh, uh, big time in the, in the spotlight. Uh, so uh, there's a good number of years of effort, uh, but not all that many recipients. And so that's a, that's a key distinguishing point. Well, and so today, for our listeners' sake, again, just remind you, at the end of the, today's slide deck, if you download the handouts, there are some additional details about the mRNA uh, and DNA vaccines that are found at the end of your slides, and you can take a look at those. Now, the reason that we are going to dive in to the mRNA vaccines is that what we know, based upon where things are with the clinical trials right now, that the first two vaccine candidates likely to come to market, either through an emergency use authorization or some sort of an approval, uh, will be mRNA vaccines. And so that's why we've chosen today to focus primarily on those vaccines and our information that we're going to share. So uh, don't you think, John, uh, the slide 13 here, it'll tell us uh, what the, a little bit more of why we're going to why we're going to focus here. Yeah, um, Brian, why don't you advance one more? Great. Um, so the, um, the, the two uh, uh, leading mRNA candidates are one from Moderna and one from uh, BioNTech is a German company that was the, the discoverer or the, the develop, primary developer. They have part partnered with Pfizer uh, to develop these products. They're both uh, mRNA products. Uh, you see the product designator that they use to keep track of it. Uh, the messenger RNA is a relatively fragile protein, and so how do you keep it from uh, being degraded? It's, it's sort of like, you, you know, you can't swallow insulin, or well, you can, but you, the molecule would, you would not have any biological activity. They need to keep the mRNA active and not degrade it long enough to get into cells. And so the way to do that is to surround it with, with a lipid. Uh, and so, and they're really tiny, so it's a nanoparticle. And it's a suspension, so it's a dispersion. Um, so all the pharmaceutical kinds of things you know. Uh, but but that's uh, that's the uh, 
Um, that's the physical form, the dosage form that, that's involved. The, um, it's also really, you'll see eventually that it relates to storage conditions. It, it, these, they, have, they haven't had enough time to, to, to refine the formulation so that it's refrigerator stable. Uh, we'll talk about that. The mRNAs are, uh, these are little uh, uh, strips of, uh, of amino acids, little, little polypeptides. Uh, they are essentially synthesized rather than grown in fermenters or bioreactors, so they're synthetic to that to that scent, but they're they're not they're not produced in cells, so there's no no issues related to the type of cells they are. Intramuscular injection, two dose products, and the efficacy values that will be determined in the phase three trial will rely on getting the second dose. So we know one of the questions already is how do we get people back for their second dose? We'll talk about that, but you need to get them back for the second dose. Both have good positive animal challenge data in non-human primates, macaques usually, and so they, the vaccines are protecting the animals against intentional challenge with virus. And they also from the phase one trials, we know that uh, both of the products induce neutralizing antibodies and also induce uh, T cell responses, T lymphocyte uh, responses. And so that's everything, so far, everything we wanna see in a vaccine candidate has been materializing. So people's hopes are up that the, all the data so far is, uh, is uh, looking good. And now the proof will be in the pudding with the, with the phase three trials. I know our listeners are gonna be anxious to hear about safety. Uh, we've already started getting questions about that. We're going to address safety in just a few slides. So folks, thanks for asking those questions and we will get to the safety information, but first, uh, as we'll show here on our next slide, I want to talk about storage and handling, John, the, the logistics and, you know, pharmacies are being relied upon heavily uh, to be able to operationalize, let's say, the vaccination program. Talk to us about the, the storage and handling of the vaccines. Right. So you, for, uh, we'll go from the top to the bottom, but you see the dose is a little different. Uh, it, it, it's just the doesn't mean that one's better or worse than the other. They're just a little different. And, you know, that's that's the right uh, uh, measurement for for that product. Both are frozen liquids, so so John, they're. Could I just could I just interrupt you just a second? Sure. One thing I want to make sure that our listeners heard co correctly: these are not equivalent doses, so that doesn't mean the Moderna vaccine is three times stronger than the right. the Pfizer vaccine. So do not make that interpretation correct. That might that's that's, exactly that's an right. important distinction. Yeah, this is not. These are uh, that that you, you said it perfectly. They are not that that it simply is. These are full doses to to for each of the products individually. Uh, so it's not a comparative thing. Uh, they're both yeah. frozen liquids. That's all right. They're both frozen liquids, so it's like a popsicle, right? Frozen liquid, uh, five or ten dose vials. There are no preservatives in these vials. What does that mean? When you, if you pierce the, the plunger or the, the stopper of the vial, you can, if you don't use good technique, introduce bacteria into the, um, into the container. And if you, and that can, and historically we've, we've had examples of people getting staph infections or streptococcal infections from contaminated products. So there's no preservative. So you must throw it away at the end of the, end of the day. Uh, essentially, but you know you can get the full all, all five doses, all ten doses out, but uh, you can't keep the vial, put it back in the refrigerator, put it back into storage. So that's pretty critical uh, information. 
these are fragile proteins. So um, uh, the uh, uh, Moderna is a ship at minus 20 degrees centigrade. That's quite cold. That's uh, uh, zero or four degrees Fahrenheit. I forget which. Uh, it's not. Too, it's not too cold. Um, it can be stored refrigerated for not more than seven days and room temperature not more than 12 days. And I should say that the that the wow, value. Exactly. The values in those cells are the, the best data we have now, and the companies are continuing to do more stability studies. You may see them relaxed, you might not over time, so just stay attuned to what the current uh, information is. Uh, the BioNTech Pfizer product must be kept colder. Ultra cold is the typical phrase used, uh, and it's at dry ice conditions. It's minus 70 or 75 centigrade that's minus 90 something fahrenheit that's way beyond ice cream folks uh that is really really cold and um so pfizer we'll talk we'll show you a picture pfizer's got some special uh shipping containers to, designed to sustain that uh, ultra cold temperature um we'll show you a picture in a minute it, it at the end just before use it can come back up to refrigerated temperatures not more than five days at this point uh, to best information available to me, uh, room temperature it, it it needs to be it's a remember it's a dry, it's a frozen liquid so it, when you thaw it it'll become a liquid it needs to be diluted from that concentrated state to a less uh, concentrated liquid so you'll need to add some fluid to it I'm assuming saline and um, uh, so that'll be a, a step that you'll need to take into account and then because and this is true for both of them. Uh, no preservative, so throw it away at the end of the ship. Yeah, They're both in, phase three, both in phase three trials now. Um, that both companies are saying that they may have enough information to apply to the FDA for an emergency use authorization, EUA, uh, in late November. And uh, by the time the FDA deals with that application, I, I'm predicting no vaccine in the field until the middle of December, but we'll see. Uh, and I want to, I do want to remind our listeners too that just a few weeks ago, uh, we had uh, guests on our show from the CDC who shared a lot of information about the federal government's plan for distribution of these vaccines when they do eventually come to market, including how they're going to manage uh, the cold chain uh, uh, from the time of distribution. If you weren't able to join us for that week's call, please go to pharmacist.com. On the COVID-19 resources page, you can actually go back and listen to all of our past COVID-19 webinars, and I would encourage folks to do that if you'd like to dive deeper into the storage and handling. Now, John, you mentioned something called emergency use authorization. Could you tell us what is an EUA? Uh, we've got, we, we, we have no shortages of abbreviations in the profession of pharmacy and in medicine. <laughs> yeah, 26 letters, we can rearrange anyway. Um, so it's a uh, an intermediate step. It's a pathway to availability, um, but it, it's it's I think of it as you know there there's not enough information. There's let me get both hands on the screen here. There's not enough uh, information to warrant licensing, but there's a point where it just gets past that tipping point, and um, uh, and, and it, it's enough that the FDA says. Okay, in an emergency, let's go ahead and make it available, but it's not it's not full licensure. 
So it's, it's a part of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. It's to give access, in this case, to an unlicensed vaccine. The FDA weighs the known and the potential benefits against the known and the potential risks. And it's actually how you, that regulatory pathway is how you got access to a lot of COVID-19 diagnostic tests in a hurry, right? Because they didn't have time to do the, the full usual process. It's, a, it's an emergency use authorization. It's how uh, new suppliers of N95 masks got uh, accessed um, and uh, remdesivir was in EUA status for a number of months. Well, how could it be that there's, you know, there's enough information to, to let it out by an EUA, but not enough for a license? Well, let's say we have the clinical trial results, but the manufacturer hasn't finished making the three consistency lots that they're required to make to show production quality. Well, that would be a reason to speed things up. The results could be positive, but Peter Marks from, the, from FDA said there's the application for a license is literally over 100,000 pages long. Now it's, it, there was a time when pharma would hire trucks to send them to FDA, and now it's electronic, uh, but it's incredible amount of data. Is it a low quality or a substandard approval? Well, it's not an approval, it's an authorization, it's a stopgap. Uh, but as long as the objective evidence is there, no, it's, it, 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 it is enough data to warrant access. Um, there's a whole bunch of uh, the whole bunch of rules and regs you'd have to follow. I'm not going to take time on that, but just to say that there would be a, not a vaccine information statement like you're used to. There'd be a fact sheet. You don't have to collect consent forms, but the fact sheet has to be given to the potential recipient, and it's voluntary. And we'll, we'll take the rest yeah. in questions. So there's a lot of uh, <clears throat> a lot of differences here with EUAs, and again, I just uh, encourage folks to to uh, reference back to this slide. I think it's very good information. Now, uh, for those of you who are following along in your handouts, you discovered that I skipped a slide, and I skipped some pretty important information about Pfizer's storage because that negative 70 degree temperature is pretty darn cold. Uh, so tell us about how they're going to actually make this work, and how does a pharmacist get a little bit more information about it. Well, so look at the middle of that schematic where it says payload. So if, if you uh, may need to get up close to your screen, but you can see that there's, uh, looks like there's five rows uh, in that cube and each of those rows or trays has been called a pizza box. And uh, imagine, you know, um, you know it, uh, it takes time and, uh, to put a vial in a box. And so one way to speed things up and, and uh, actually reduce temperature exposure too is to have the vials touching each other or maybe little cardboard dividers, but, but all in a bigger box rather than individually boxed. And so um, the, what, what Pfizer expects is that each of those five trays is gonna have 900 and something doses in it. They will be uh, bundled together. There'll be dry ice on top of it. They'll go into that shipping container that you see there and um, so it, insulated sufficiently to, to um, uh, keep it uh, at that minus 70 something degrees centigrade, minus uh, 90 uh, Fahrenheit temperature for a certain number of days or hours. And then the, uh, the dry ice can be replenished. Um, one of the questions, anticipating one of the questions that came in early, it's gonna take time to keep these things cold and it's gonna take staff resources and um, you, you know, you may, if you're involved in this, you may need to dedicate some people who have, who are going to follow the instructions to the letter 
to make sure product quality is sustained. Yeah. And, you know, John, we've asked you to come today to really talk about these first two vaccines that are coming to market. And I know as our pharmacists are listening to this, you're seeing this and saying, holy cow, this is going to be a logistical a nightmare. It may be very difficult um, for pharmacies to, you know, in some cases to get really involved, especially with the, with this uh, sub-zero freezing temperature um, uh, uh, product. Um, we will bring John back on the show when, when we uh, see that we're getting closer with some of the other vaccine candidates that are out there, uh, when they're when they're getting a little closer to market because some of those products have very different storage parameters and different storage requirements. And so uh, we will get to that eventually, but uh, today we just wanted to focus on what we thought would be the most practical things for you to implement into practice over the next six weeks or so uh, as these products are coming in. Now, John, let's get to safety because it's a huge question on everybody's mind. Uh, we're getting tons of questions in the questions box about this already. What do we know about vaccine safety with COVID vaccines? So and CDC in particular. <laughs> yeah, CDC and the FDA are going to do all their usual safety monitoring plus, uh, plus a cell phone-based uh, monitoring system that's called, going to be called uh, vSafe. And uh, they'll be convening weekly to look at all of the reports that come in The um, uh, in the um, just about the center of that slide, you'll see reference to VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, and um, uh, that's one that, that the public seems to, to focus on because they think of individual case reports, and, and uh, that's important. It's a, it's a spontaneous reporting system. It doesn't have the scientific power that some of the other surveillance systems had, so I like to think, I like to put emphasis on the vaccine safety data link, which is taking large computer databases so, so that a million people can be looked at all at once. And th there's a reason for, for wanting to make those comparisons. I'll show you in just a moment. But over on the left-hand panel uh, is a different document that I called from one of the CDC websites. But you can see expanded safety monitoring systems, existing safety monitoring systems, uh, members of the military, general public, et cetera. So, I mean, it, it, this is a multifaceted, multi, you know, it's not enough just to look at it this way. They're going to look at it this way. They're going to look at it this way. They're, you know, there's all sorts of, all the strengths and all the limitations of any one of these approaches is countered by some other program has, that has that as, as a strength. And so the sum of all these things is why we should be confident that, um, uh, that, that safety is being monitored very Let's go to the next slide. So, or ask a question, but I want to tell you some stories. Yeah, I want to hear your stories. But before we do that, I just want to ask a question about uh, about these two mRNA vaccines. John, have you seen the safety data from the phase two trials, and and do you have any concerns personally? I mean, um, yeah. I know I've read them, and and uh, but I, I'd like uh, you know you you hold a tremendous amount of credibility. We really want to hear what's on your mind. Are you concerned about any of the safety information you saw in the phase two trials that have been published on either one of these mRNA vaccines? I have no concern at all. Shots hurt. They got injection site side effects. Uh, you know, there were reports of fever and malaise and lethargy and, and headache and those sorts of things, as happens in all trials. So I actually called 
some folks at the over at the University of Maryland, you know, willing to volunteer to be in these trials, but I wasn't willing to drive across the Chesapeake Bay Bridge to get there. So uh, I didn't sign up for the trials, but it was because of logistics, not because of uh, uh, fear of uh, of side effects of the vaccine. Okay, yeah. I want to remind our listeners again, uh, we also had Dr. Shima Kabaro uh, from CDC uh, on. Uh, he's the vaccine safety officer for uh, the Centers for Disease Control, and we had an officer from the FDA on our show a few weeks ago as well. So again, uh, another one of these weekly webinars where we dove deeper into vaccine safety, and, and uh, actually Tom went through uh, what the FDA and the CDC are doing in terms of post-marketing surveillance to make sure that uh, that the vaccines are not only safe in the trials up to this point, but we're continually continually looking for safety signals to be able to ensure that the supply is safe. And I think that's important. Uh, I would encourage pharmacists to take time to listen to those two programs if you haven't. Now, John, you've, you've got some experiences with uh, uh, flu vaccine campaigns when we've had right. vaccines come to market quickly. I'd like to hear what your thoughts are about that. I think we got some picture of uh, President Ford here. It looks Gerald like Gerald um, Ford getting his swine flu vaccine in 1976. Um, and and it, this is this is uh, one story of a mirage and one story of reality. So the mirage was that in October of 76, uh, three people died of heart attacks after getting a swine flu vaccination on the same day, all in Pittsburgh. And, you know, newspaper headlines went crazy, but nobody had bothered to check how many people die of a heart attack in Pittsburgh in October on any one day. And it was way more than three. And so, yes, they're all three coincidental bad events, but it was coincidental. It was not caused. This was no change from the usual rates of heart attack deaths in a big city. In, in, so that's I call that a mirage. It looked like a problem, but it wasn't a problem. Uh, but but then contrast that with the recognition in November of Guillain-Barre syndrome, the neurolytic neuroparalytic syndrome, uh, in vaccine recipients, and there was one report, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one, and another one, and it was a true cause and effect relationship uh, of an elevated risk due to vaccines, uh, four times the uh, rate in the vaccinated group compared to the unvaccinated group. That one was a true cause and effect relationship. And so um, when uh, these vaccination programs for COVID get rolled out, there will be adverse events and you saw it in the clinical, some of the clinical trial holds, but whether that's cause and effect needs, needs review, not knee jerk assumptions. So, John, I'm going to uh, ask a question from a couple of our audience members. Folks, we're going to start taking your questions now. Uh, I've got a couple who don't have audio who would like for me to ask their questions on, on their behalf. So if you have questions, please type those into the question box. A uh, question from, <clears throat> from Matt Tachik is, uh, can you explain the rationale for doing phase two and phase three trials concurrently? And what what's the benefit of that? Uh, explain why that's happening in this circumstance, or why this is hap uh, seems to be happening. Right. So the we start with a thousand people a day are dying of this infection. You know, it's a bad it's a bad pandemic. It's is the worst public health crisis in a hundred years. Um, so how do we speed up a solution, a vaccine to um, to solve that, and at the same time. Uh, 
you know, not cut corners and, and um, gather all the data that needs to be gathered. And it was by doing steps almost simultaneously, not quite, I should do it, sorry, I should do it the other way, um, not quite simultaneously. The, the, the phase two study was, uh, were started, they got some preliminary data, and then they started phase three before they got all the data. Um, and, and so in a nutshell, by doing things nearly simultaneously, all the steps are being conducted um, and um, uh, uh, so that's a little bit uh, risky in money of investment, but uh, without uh, short uh, circuiting the quality of the information to be received. Yeah. Uh, Barry Bunting uh, doesn't have audio, but has a question for you, John. Uh, will we need to be careful not to shake the frozen material when thawing? Is there any concerns about uh, that kind of stability in terms of the jostling the vial? So um, they're proteins. So, I mean, even insulin, you know, you don't shake the vial so much that you get frothing, right? There'll be, there, there may be a gentle agitation comment, uh, but uh, I'm sure that there'll be something about no vigorous shaking. Yeah. Um, I, Meredith Goodwin has just put a question in the chat box, and I'm going to ask the staff if they would unmute Meredith Goodwin, G-O-O-D-W-I-N. Meredith Goodwin, we're going to unmute your line and let you ask your question. Uh, looks like she may need us to ask the question for her. Uh, is When will a package insert be available? Will Will the package insert, so to speak, for these vaccines come with the EUA, or will uh, the two vet manufacturers release that early so that pharmacists can familiarize themselves with the content. So if you didn't know, package inserts have to be approved by the FDA. So uh, it, there won't be anything until, um, so the, the, the sequence of steps is the company requests the EUA and then the FDA reviews it, actually goes to its advisory committee and then issues it. I, it, I doubt that there would be any release of the official PI until that release that release that makes that makes sense okay and and one thing we didn't talk about was uh what, what are we anticipating in terms of age approvals for these vaccines when they first come to market with the eua are these going to be used in children are they going to be used in adults will it be okay to use them in seniors what what are you anticipating with that john so if the if that's if uh, i don't see a slide number but if the if that, if that um, comparative chart is on is being projected, look down at the bottom row, ages in the phase three trials, and you'll see both both uh, companies have basically a uh, uh, a young adult to 64 year age, you know, 18 to 64, 12 to 56 arm, and a 65 plus arm, and so those there'll there'll be two numbers reported out, two numbers reported out, one for the mid adult group and one for the older adult group. And um, they might eat a little bit different. And assuming they're both positive, uh, you'd get uh, the company would get an indication for both age ranges. Now, this is a uh, SARS-CoV-2 is a adult-centric uh, infection. Obviously, children do get it, but it's not the prime focus of the of the pathogen. Um, and and it, anytime you do a vaccine study, you always start off with adults. And then you go to, you know, figuratively teenagers, and then you go to grade schoolers, and then you go to toddlers, and only then do you go to infants. And um, so I expect we'll, we'll they're going to, I think, want to see, you know, confirmation of efficacy in adults, and then you'll see 
more trials to, to younger age groups, but it's going to take more time. Yeah, and I think that's uh, one of the things that makes this so different from H1N1. So H1N1, we immunized uh, children first. That was part of our strategy, but that won't be the case. Well, we knew flu vaccines worked in kids, right? So that was that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So, well, uh, we've got a lot of shy people today who are saying, uh, please ask this question for me. Please <laughs> ask this question for me. So I'll do that uh, really quick. Uh, we'll start diving into a few more of these. Um, uh, Will uh, will all pharmacists, okay, uh, have first access as healthcare professionals, uh, or only those actively vaccinating patients? And I think what our uh, question uh, asker is getting here to here is um, the, the uh, uh, World Health Organization on a global scale, and then um, the National Academies of Medicine recommendations for prioritization, uh, and some of the public information about the ACIP's discussions up to this point on prioritization, talk about healthcare professionals being vaccinated first. So uh, we do know that pharmacists are included as healthcare professionals in all of those documents. So that part we can say affirmatively that pharmacists are included as healthcare professionals. The question, John, is do they have to be actively caring for patients to be able to receive the vaccine in that first cohort, or is it just by the fact that they're pharmacists that they could potentially get vaccinated? We're not gonna have enough vaccine initially to spread the peanut butter as far as we would like to spread the peanut butter. And so there's gonna to have to be hard choices made about prioritization. I would assume, and these decisions haven't been made yet, that, um, that it's patient-focused, patient-facing uh, individuals who would go before, figuratively, office, building, sitting um, professionals. So just because you have a, a degree or a license doesn't mean you'd be high up. It's that you, it's because of your patient encounters that, that would gain you extra points. Okay. Um, we've got a great question here from Ann Pelk, I'll ask. Uh, this, is, this is a really important logistics question. So you mentioned that uh, both vaccines are going to come in five-dose vials. Five, um, one five and one ten. That's right. One's five and one ten. Uh, will pharmacists need to go ahead and draw up all of the doses out of the vial at one time? Uh, within that six-hour window, or will you just draw one dose up and administer it, draw another dose up and administer it, draw another dose up and administer it? Uh, and then how long is the vaccine stable in a syringe? We, you mentioned in the vial at six hours after you've brought it up. Uh, so what about in the syringe? Uh, I don't know the stability in the syringe, and, and not all syringes are made equal. They are made of, equal, of the same components, so there probably will be little information about stability in the syringe. So I anticipate that the answer will be uh, draw it up just as you use it. And, and um, if, uh, if, well, first of all, use good technique and don't put any bacteria into the vial. All right, that's rule number one. If you inadvertently did and you put it back in, you know, a cooling condition refrigerator uh, and then a couple of hours took it out again to give another dose, um, it should be fine. The, the bacteria would not have uh, multiplied in that intervening time. Um, but the, um, the other thing is that in the initial stages, uh, the products are going to be shipped to places where it will be high volume throughput, I would expect. So it, I, I don't think this is probably going to be much of an issue. 
Okay. Um, a couple more logistics questions here that I think are really important that we want to make sure we get these. Um, um, as far as administration goes, do we need to have a COVID vaccine under an immunization protocol? Well, this is kind of a policy question, John. I'll let you uh, answer it. And of course, if we need to, we can call on uh, uh, Mike Baxter to join us, but John, go ahead. Yeah, so, um, well, so you gotta follow the law uh, and you gotta follow the state law, but I think the federal uh, emergency statements have, had, well, have they literally made the pharmacist the prescriber? Who's the question is who's the prescriber? And you can tell me what the federal opinion says. Yeah, so the federal, the HHS federal opinion authorizes pharmacists to prescribe COVID-19 vaccine and administer it. And in fact, you can prescribe it and have your technician administer it if they're qualified. You can prescribe it and have your student pharmacist administer it if they're qualified. So uh, as uh, with the COVID-19 vaccine under the emergency, uh, under the PrEP Act, you do have as pharmacists the ability to prescribe it. You do not have to include it um, uh, under a protocol uh, arrangement. So that's a uh, very important information. I'm glad you've asked that question. It was it was uh, right on and good for us to reemphasize this. One more storage question, John. How long is the Pfizer product stable at uh, minus 70? So they've started manufacturing this product way in advance of it ever getting an EUA. Do we have any idea how many doses have been stockpiled and and how long is it going to be stable without a preservative in it? Um, well, so the company knows, I don't know, uh, it, usually at that cold, you know, when it's that cold molecule, you know, the Brownian motion slows down <laughs> and, uh, so there's, it's probably pretty stable. The, um, oh, how many doses have been stockpiled? The, the, the uh, Pfizer CEO uh, gave an investor call for Wall Street a few weeks ago, a week ago, I guess, and he said that they had hundreds of thousands of doses ready. I'm interpreting that to be in vials packaged. Um, and, but that surely does not count all the, all the product that would be at the intermediate production steps. And so they are, uh, their contractual obligation to Uncle Sam is to have 20 or 30 or maybe 40 million doses by the end of the year, by the end of December. So I'm, I'm you know, they'll, you know, um, there's not going to be enough peanut butter on day one um, to, to to go around, but, you know, more will come with each week, each month, and uh, as, as the manufacturing ramps up. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about immunity. Uh, one of the things you emphasized early on is that second dose is really, really important. If I remember correctly, uh, in the phase two trials with one of the two vaccines, uh, there's only about 18% of people who seroconvert after the first dose. The second dose gets us up to what percent uh, in the uh, phase two trials? High, high 90s, or if not 100. I mean, almost everybody seroconverted, um, as, as I remember the numbers. Without going to, I, mean, I can look it up, but I don't think it's, that's the point. I think you're right. It's close to 100. Yeah. There, there's, two, there's two points on, on the second dose. A, you need to document the first dose and it's, it's got to be in, the, in you know, one or more computers and it should be on the patient's paper, hand them a paper record as a backup. And then call them back for dose two of the same brand. And so how can you call them back? What do you do for prescription reminders? Can, are you part of a health system that has a portal that can send out targeted messages? 
uh, the, uh, there was a question about payers. Can payers help with that? Uh, or just, you know, uh, broadcasting, come in, you know, these people are eligible for dose one and don't forget if you've got dose one, you need to come back for dose two. Do all the, pull all your tricks out of your book. Okay, John, I'm gonna ask you one more question and then we're gonna bring Mitch Rothholz on to deal with some payment uh, for vaccine issues that we're gonna talk about uh, and, uh, and Mike Baxter. So let me, let me ask you this one last question. We don't know anything yet, do we, about duration of protection from vaccination? Uh, and do we anticipate that this is gonna be sort of like the flu shot that you're gonna have to get an annual uh, dose of vaccine or what are you expecting on that uh, in your crystal ball? We don't know fundamentally. And so uh, we need to get started and then find out later. The only way to know is to wait a few years and find out. So we'll find out in real time. The, the folks in the trials will be some of the first clues. You've seen a lot lately about, well, uh, immunity to natural infection wears off quickly. I, I'm, I don't find that impressive. I, I want to know what the vaccine does. The, 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 this is a disadvantage with mRNAs and in, in the, in the adenovirus vectors is we, we, you know, we have less experience with them than others. But, you know, if we need another dose in a year, so, you know, okay, fine. Uh, you know, we, we know how to handle that. If it's longer, okay, fine. We know how to handle that too. Well, John, thanks for joining us. I know that uh, uh, you've got a lot on your plate and uh, taking time out of your day to, to join us for this webinar is important. Now, John has also shared with us some information about the Immunization Action Coalition. We've got that uh, information listed on a slide here uh, for you that are uh, resources that you can use from immunize.org. Is there anything um, as you depart and we bring the other members of our team on that you'd like to say about these resources? They're free, <laughs> and there's lots of them. And uh, we have a we have a immunize.org or immunization action coalition has a big tradition of making available uh, ref, um, resources in multiple languages. And if you've got new staff that need to learn injection technique or something, um, you know they. I was talking to Mike Cullen, you know the medication error guy, earlier today. You know we got new. You know there'll be it, it, there could be new nurses who. We're in some other clinic that suddenly are going to be doing a lot of vaccinating. Make sure everybody does it well. We avoid errors and, and we communicate with the patient. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, John. That's it for this edition of Locked on Pharmacy. This is your host, Frank Fortin. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Pharmacists Association, the largest professional association of pharmacists in the United States. 